0: hey everyone how you doing it's me it's Clara and I'm back with another one of my science chats so in these videos I am chatting to my friends who are awesome scientists or engineers or mathematicians and we're going to find out a little bit about what they do where they work how you know the work environment is for them and maybe chat a little bit about equity as well so uh, today I'm really excited I've got Dr. Clara Nellis um, who is a uh, particle physicist at cern on the atlas project so that's super exciting anyone that's been um sort of looking at my uh, videos on how what we use superconductors for um i actually talk a little bit about particle acceleration and i talk about how we use to create magnetic fields for um making sure that our particles uh crash into each other at the right place basically and so um uh, Clara is actually working on that kind of stuff, so that's great. Um, so, before we start, Clara's got a YouTube channel and uh, you know, is on socials and stuff. So, give her a, a like and a follow, and of course, like, subscribe, share if you enjoy it. And with that, we will move over to
1: the video. Yeah, hi, I'm Clara. I am a particle physicist working on the Atlas experiment at CERN. Uh, and I study all particles and how they interact with each other to try and understand uh, what the universe is built out of. It's really succinct.
0: That's awesome. And <laughs> uh, also, like I say, we know each other through some of this sort of outreach and the diversity and inclusion work. So tell us a little overview and we'll come back to that later, but a little overview of the stuff that you're involved in.
1: Yeah, I guess to also try and keep it succinct, um, as I was progressing through physics, I noticed, of course, that um, there's a lack of diversity and initially I was looking at uh, women in physics um, and so I wanted to encourage more women in physics and as I have progressed through my career I've noticed that it's not just about getting people into physics but it's creating an environment where everybody can thrive and really flourish with their research so it's also about keeping people in physics and it's and now I've uh, broadened out and understanding the different um, diversity that we need to include in, in
0: science. Yeah, that's yeah something I was talking about with Andrew. It's really nice that, you know, I started out looking at sort of LGBTI plus in, in STEM and maybe working class in STEM, and it's it's broadened out. And actually, I like the fact that we are being more sort of intersectional because it means yeah. we're not just trying to improve things for one group, we're trying to improve things for everyone. And, you know, it means that... well. Intersectional people exist as well, so <laughs>
1: um, yeah. And it's it's a fight that we uh, that we're stronger if we work together. So we shouldn't just be focusing on my area or you know this one area. But if we if we work to, together and and make a, a really substantial change, then everybody can can benefit from it.
0: Completely agree. Completely agree. But this is this is why we're all friends. Uh, <laughs> I think we're yeah. in, in many ways on the same page, and yet we're not scared to call out each other and say, "No, this is." I I have a different viewpoint. It's nice that we're able to actually sort of criticize and and make yeah. each other think, and we're all willing to listen, which is really cool as well. So, um, but I will. I'll I'll come back to the um the science first of all. So, I notice your background, is that from uh, where you work per se? <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, so but... this is the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, so this is part of the uh, uh, experimental setup that we have, um, so it's a, a 27 kilometer long tunnel, so if I went that way for 27 kilometers, I would end up back in the same spot.
0: Okay, so that seems like a good a good workout Um yeah I, oh, I
1: really want to run it but they don't let you obviously oh. because it's quite a sensitive uh environment but i'd love to do a 27 kilometer race through the tunnel yeah i
0: understand why they don't but also yeah they should
1: yeah um, i think there's a virtual uh video of going through the whole tunnel but i'd have to dig it out
0: wow yeah i i, I should point out i i could not manage 27k, uh, 27. What is it, 27 kilometers or miles? Sorry, yeah,
1: it's kilometers, yeah. So, That's a strong. little over half a marathon,
0: yeah. No, a few years ago, I was like, you know what, I'm gonna get myself to the point where I can run a half marathon, and I was doing 10k's, but then uh, my knees unfortunately won't let me run anymore, so it is what mm-hmm. it is. So, I'm much better hanging off rock races and climbing <laughs> instead. So, anyway, <laughs> oh, and like I say, I get sidetracked a lot, so I apologize okay. in advance. So yes, yeah, so you you work at CERN. How long have you been there? And you talked about the ATLAS project. So what does that do within the sort of projects at CERN?
1: Yeah, so I have been uh, working on experiments at CERN for uh, over 10 years now, um, but always with the ATLAS uh, collaboration, the ATLAS experiment. So along the LHC tunnel, we have four major detectors um, that have slightly different uh, goals uh, in the research. Um, and two of them, ATLAS and CMS, um, are looking for, we say it's general physics, um, so we we collide protons together at the center of our detectors, um, and then we measure everything that comes off of them and try to recreate uh, what was there at the center. So it could have been a Higgs boson, it could be um, many of the standard model particles that we know of, or it could be something new. So it could be dark matter, it could be uh, other kinds of physics. Um, and I, I started, So my PhD is actually working on the detector itself. So I I started uh, upgrading the detector. Um, So the very heart of the Atlas detector uh, is made out of pixels. And uh, my PhD was on developing new pixels so that we could uh, take even better data. Um, And now I work more on the analysis side, so studying the different particles uh, in the collisions that we produce. Oh that's
0: fantastic. I hadn't realized you'd been working on it so long. I wasn't sure because mm. some people obviously they you know I've been in my current group 5 years and I was in all different groups before that. So you've been, you've been on the project some time now.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I've I've moved to different universities. So I started at the University of Manchester and since then I've had different postdocs but it's always with the same collaboration. So it's it's kind of strange because you change countries, you change labs, you change groups. Uh but actually the work you're doing can be either exactly the same or very similar um so it's kind of nice to still have that continuity
0: yeah i find the same thing i worked in a lot of labs and every so often i'll be like i'll just get this oh no that was a different lab i don't have that here um yeah no that that's that's really interesting so does that mean a lot of the stuff that you do you do spend a lot of time because you've been in different universities Um, Do you spend a lot of time on site at CERN, or do you do a lot of offline work as well? How how does that Um, work?
1: So it's a bit of a mix. Uh, When I was doing a lot of hardware work, I really needed to be in the lab uh, that I was with because we had clean room facilities where we would test our detectors um, in-house. And then we would spend a lot of time either at CERN or at DAISY, which is in Germany, uh, which is another particle accelerator lab uh, where we could do the actual tests within the beam conditions uh, with our detectors. Uh, so as a PhD student, I was based at CERN for a full year, um, which was really great to to meet people and to to get integrated into the community. Uh, and then since then, I've spent a lot of time going back and forth. So I spend say about a third of my time at CERN and the rest of the time in the lab or the university.
0: Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Where's it? Where's Daisy?
1: So Daisy's uh, in uh, Hamburg, uh, so just on the outside of the city.
0: Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Ah, uh, I've only travelled through Hamburg Airport. I think that's about yeah. It, so. Okay, cool. And so, um, so where are you now? What where are you based now? And I realise this is a leading question because <laughs> you're sort of in between, right?
1: <laughs> well, so I'm still with the same. So I'm I'm currently in Nijmegen in uh, the Netherlands. So this is where my university is. I'm with uh, Radboud. Uh, and also with NICEF, which is the Dutch uh, high energy physics uh, funding. And so I'm still going to be with them, but I'm 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 moving to CERN to be based there uh, for a while. So yeah, kind of in between locations.
0: I'm fascinated about CERN, mm-hmm. and I've got a little bit of an idea. And and uh, but my first degree wasn't physics, so I'm always sort of you know. I think we were talking about this recently I was trying to double check that some of my stuff was right.
1: (laughs) But yeah, I mean, even within CERN though, I mean, I have to do this too. So it's such a huge facility and there's so much going on that uh, we can become experts in this one thing and then something else happening in the accelerator uh, research or on one of the other experiments, I have to go and ask people to explain that to me or we have a discussion about it. So. It's very common, there's so much going on that you can't possibly know everything, to be honest.
0: And it's a, I mean, it's a big facility, but uh, yeah, so I've worked with people um, that work with, you know, making the superconductors, mm. uh, obviously being in the Centre for Applied Superconductivity at Oxford, mm. <laughs> um, and. Uh, we've I've worked with people that are involved in making different coatings for the inside mm. of the uh, uh, the tubes and stuff like that. So I've worked with sort of the materials thin films groups, and mm-hmm. uh, it's it's really cool and really interesting, and it's amazing just how. I mean, CERN is such a massive facility, obviously. Like you say, it's Mm. 27 (laughs) kilometres. Is it a big campus? Is there campuses in different countries at that stage?
1: Yeah, so actually we have two main campuses. Um, So we have the main one, which is in Switzerland, although within that you can cross into France and back into Switzerland again without leaving the campus. Um, So we have a little stone that says when you're going into into france and then we have another campus that's actually just in france um, which is where for example the control center for the large hadron collider is so a lot of the accelerator physicists are based on that site um and then a lot of the detector people are based on the Marin site which is in switzerland
0: so cool i
1: love the fact that it's like oh i'm in another country
0: i hadn't realized where i'd wandered that's um that's really cool. I love that.
1: And people forget when they go to the other site, and there's a restaurant there that you have to pay in euros, whereas on the on the main site you pay in Swiss francs. Of course. Um, so you you can pay in other currency, but sometimes the exchange rate isn't so good. So you want to pay in the correct currency for the country you're in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and and,
0: and having. Been a postdoc in Switzerland for four years. Is the uh, canteen in Switzerland about five times as expensive as the one on the French side?
1: Uh, it's it the the good thing about CERN is that even though it seems expensive when you get there from somewhere else, if you then go and eat in Geneva, it's it's actually quite reasonable uh, the cost compared to eating in town. Um, so it's it's a bit more expensive than the French side, but it's not a massive difference because they can't, they try and keep it reasonable for people.
0: Yeah, we actually um I was doing some experiments. We got a short-term project from an EU cost action to uh, allow mm. a professor from uh, Belgium to come and work with me in in Zurich and um and they have a very set amount that you can for sort of daily living and that wasn't yeah. even half the cost of the cheapest hotel I could find. Yeah. So. <laughs> um so they ended up um, crashing in my spare room for a couple of weeks instead, but yeah. Cool. So, what is it you're you're doing on a day to day basis? How often are experiments running? How often are you smashing things into other things? And um, is that a rare <laughs> occurrence?
1: For my work or just in general? <laughs> How much do you smash stuff up? Um, <laughs> yeah. There's a great, my favorite comic. There's a great comic um, that has uh, it says if biologists did their research like the LHC, or like CERN, and they just smash two frogs into each other uh, and try and look at all the pieces, um, which I don't recommend doing because it's not very nice to frogs, but I thought it was quite funny. Um, Yeah, so day-to-day, I'm uh, doing analysis work now. Um, So we're we're not currently running at CERN. We're in what's called a shutdown period, um, which is a scheduled block of time for about one or two years um, where we warm up the accelerator open up all the caverns and we um, install our upgrades we do repairs we maybe improve yeah um, so the accelerator uh, if we want to move to a higher energy it also needs to be trained the magnets um, so all of this happens during the shutdown uh, and so during that period we're not, for example, doing shifts in the control room. We're not monitoring the detectors, um, but we're still analyzing the data that we've taken before. Um, so we have a huge chunk of data uh, that we're sifting through to try and do precision measurements, to try and find new particles, to yeah, do all of the studies that we want to do ready so that when we take more data uh, starting next year, then, um, then yeah, we're ready to, to add to the data we've already got.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, it's ironic that you mentioned flags. I just chatted with um, Andrew Princep and he was talking about levitating frogs.
1: Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> go figure. We don't levitate any frogs. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So day to so day, I'm doing a lot of coding. Um, so a lot of uh, writing uh, okay. scripts to, to search through the data to select um, events that we're interested in. And also I, I'm starting to do more machine learning work Uh, so writing algorithms to select for me um, because there's so much that we have to consider Um, so all the different um, all the different features of the event that we could say okay i want one electron rather than two electrons and that will look um, at a certain set of data for us we can teach machine learning algorithms to do that in a in a more intelligent way in a more uh, powerful way
0: so you're not just using a microscope and you know looking really hard (laughs) that is a joke of course
1: (laughs) although we do sometimes say that uh the lhc is like a huge microscope because it's it's really looking at things on a tiny scale so we don't look with our eyes but uh we often use the analogy that it is like a a huge microscope funnily enough as i was
0: saying it i was i was actually wondering (laughs) that because that's effectively what you're doing i mean you are like you say looking at very small things or uh, in a uh, well very very small things in fact but mm. <laughs> yeah and there's a, a lot of crossover with some of the work that i do but obviously it's a very different scale and the idea of a two-year shutdown for maintenance um i can imagine that the researchers in my lab would um not be so happy if i said that we had a, a i'm just going to do some quick maintenance uh the system yeah. will be up and running again in two years i mean most research positions might not even be that long
1: we have a a page that tells you the status of the lhc and i I like so at the end of the last shutdown they usually write so sometimes we have shutdowns for um say a, a day um but that's not shutting down the whole of the lhc it's it's not doing collisions for physics analysis, but the accelerator physicists might want to do some beam studies, for example. And so they'll put a little note on this page, you know, shut down for beam studies or whatever. And at the end of the last set of run, they said they wrote shut down uh, for intervention, estimated time, two years. <laughs> so, <laughs>
0: Wow. Yeah. yeah. I don't know, uh, I mean, a, a different bit of a kit, but I was um, column in the UK, um, at JET, looking yeah. at their fusion generator and I was there when they were sort of trying to get it ready to turn back on after a long time and actually the next time I was there they just fired it up like mm. the day or so before I was there doing some trans awareness and I got to see them firing up Jet which was pretty cool <laughs> that
1: does sound very cool I would love to see that
0: yeah yeah I don't think I was supposed to be there but they were like yeah whatever that would <laughs> yeah. <It'd> be fine. <laughs> so um I love it and I'm also getting to learn all this different stuff as well which is mm. fascinating so so basically particles are being sort of smashed into each other not frogs particles um and then you're measuring them so how are you smashing the particles and how are you measuring them and i realize that that is a lot of information so feel free to talk about the in whatever depth you feel happy doing
1: yeah so uh we we have the protons in the accelerator. And uh, the accelerator physicists uh, work on making the bunch of protons really dense um, together, because that means that when when each beam crosses each other, uh, you want the chance of there to be an interaction to be very high. And so, the denser the the proton bunch we call it, uh, the more likely you'll get a collision. And um, so that's what they they work on, and they also work on making sure like the crossing angle is is right um, to increase chance of collision Uh, so they yeah they accelerate the protons to very nearly the speed of light we get them up to what's called 13 tev Uh, that's the it's a tera electron volt and it's the um, center of mass energy uh, of the collision and then using einstein's equation e equals mc squared so we know that matter can be converted into energy and then back into matter again Um, so we yeah, we take the matter and the energy from the the protons. Um, they collide together, and from that, something a new particle is created. Uh, so the 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 rate of the the particles being created depends on what you're colliding, uh, the energy um, that they're colliding at. So we can predict all of this. Um, and then a lot of these particles are not very stable. So for example, the Higgs boson doesn't hang around. Uh, it doesn't, uh, it's not a stable particle. So it will change into lighter particles uh, from the standard model, or perhaps outside the standard model, which would be wonderful. Yeah. Um, and then these lighter particles travel out in sort of a firework shape. Um, it's not a firework, but that's kind of the spray that it comes out as. Uh, And as they travel through different parts of our detector, uh, which are specialized for identifying and measuring the properties of different particles, uh, it's then like a fingerprint. We can say, okay, we had these types of particles in this section of the detector and they had this energy and we add it all back together and we can say, okay, there was probably a Higgs boson there. So we can never say for certain what was in the center, um, but we can, we can, predict from from what we measure and we do this billions of times uh, and then we put it together in these fancy plots uh, and we say okay there so for the higgs discovery for example we looked at you can look at the rate of two photons coming out of the detector and this happens for lots of different types of events and so you get a nice falling uh, graph as you increase the the energy of the two photons and then you get a little bump 125 GeV. Uh, once you collect enough data, and from that bump, you can say there was a particle that was uh, decaying into those two photons. It had a mass of 125 GeV. None of our other particles have a mass of 125 GeV, so it's a new particle. Uh, and so that's one of the ways that we we discover new particles in our data.
0: Wow, that's so cool. It's, <laughs> I mean, and like you say, it's, I mean, it's a lot of energy. So I, I tried to do a very basic overview of it in a a video that should be going out fairly soon actually on my channel which you kindly looked over and corrected but it is it's so complicated there's so much different stuff going on and so many different mm-hmm. theories that it and, and especially not coming from a physics background for me it was like well, I, I it was it was a learning curve
1: <laughs> yeah but I, I will say um the one of the misconceptions we sometimes get at CERN is that it's only physicists uh, that are working there but we really have a massive team of engineers, computer scientists, um, material scientists and then that's also to mention we have uh, lawyers and human resources staff and translators and so CERN is uh, tens of thousands of people uh, and we really need everybody to come together to make this happen so the person who gets to make that final plot and say i found the particle gets you know a lot of the credit often but really there's such a massive team behind the whole endeavor uh, and i'm sure i've missed groups out so oh yeah we have firefighters on we have a dedicated fire fighting team um, just so that we don't set anything on fire or if we do they come stop it
0: Yeah, actually, uh, when I was when I was doing my postdoc in in Switzerland, I, my uh lab, uh, my office partners, my office mates' uh, dad was one of the health and safety inspectors at CERN. So Mm. kind of he was his dad was part of one you know one of the parts of the cogs in that machine, and we were talking about it before because yeah, I was talking about with usually I work with material scientists and even within the material scientists, there's the coating groups and there's the Mm -hmm. superconducting group. And there's, there's so many of those. There's so many different people, um, quite remarkable just how many people are there and, and how much effort goes into making the experiments work. Um, which is why I think, I don't know if any of our viewers have looked, but you know, when you've got a paper, there's like two pages Mm -hmm. of people listed, um, on there but it's it's because there is so much involved and so much going on so
1: yeah so just quickly the example that i gave with the higgs to two photons so it's not you also have to do a lot of calibration and, and understanding for example of uh are you measuring the photons correctly and are your detectors working well and uh yeah how do you read out the data are you collecting the right amount of data how do you store it so all of these questions have to be answered well before you can make that final study and that's why there's so many teams and so everybody in the collaboration who's done any contribution to the to the collaboration then gets to have their name on every future paper um because you really can't say that just one team made that measurement it's it's such a a huge team effort
0: yeah absolutely and like i mean it's like it's such a large piece of kit so of course you, you it needs a lot of people um you know, I'm I'm all well and good maintaining a few vacuum chambers in my mm-hmm. lab, but um, I mean your vacuum chamber is on a literally another scale.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I think don't we have it's a bigger vacuum than outer space? You think? I don't know. I know it's colder than than outer space uh, at the LHC. I'd have to double check the vacuum, but it's a very it has to be a very good vacuum because any any sort of stray particles or dust that's in the accelerator can uh, can degrade the measurement.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We so my equipments are just sort of high vacuum or ultra high vacuum, and then you've got yeah. space. And I think you're yeah. The uh, I can't even imagine the size of the vacuum pumps or the type of vacuum pumps you've got working at. Um, at the LHA. I've not actually had a look around, so... Um,
1: oh, you I'm... have to come visit?
0: Yeah, I believe and it or not. Tour. Yeah, I've even... So I, I, I streamed a video that was um, talking about sort of LGBTI in STEM and that was being streamed to a group in CERN and, and mm-hmm. I've worked with so many different people. I've even lived in the same country and I... have Well, half the same country. Uh, but... <laughs> and I still not managed to... Uh, yeah, but
1: you're in the German-speaking part, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very very different part of the country.
0: <laughs> it's, it's amazing how different Switzerland is across um, relatively small length and breadth. It's it's, yeah. it's quite amazing, but uh, I did have a nice time there though. <laughs> and it is beautiful being surrounded by uh, mountains. Oxford's far too flat for my liking. Someone that climbs and hikes. Um, yeah. I like a bit of mountain. <laughs> 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 and, uh, um, one question that sort of occurs to me, and this is probably a really basic question, but I'm putting you on the spot, so maybe it's not. Um, so you're sending these uh, particles around the system, and like you said, it's 26 kilo- uh, 27 kilometres long. Mm-hmm. So how long does it take them to, to do a, a rotation?
1: Uh, that's a good question. We collide bunches 11,000 times per second, but that's not necessarily because we have a whole train that's in the beam. It's... it's uh, say say a tenth of a thousandth of a second did I say that correctly it's very very quick
0: yeah that's that's incredible and do they um when I was doing my animations I had them going round and round and round do they Mm -hmm. go around a few times or do they go around once
1: Uh, well so it's eleven thousand times a second so if you say if you had one bunch yeah I'd have to check the numbers completely but yeah yeah yeah. So, but then we have the beam in the LHC for hours. Um, so I think the, there there is a, a record of the LHC, uh, which I think is over a day of having beam circulating in the in the collider. So it's it's billions of times that they they will uh, or more uh, go around the the accelerator. Wow. Uh, and really really we eventually we just get rid of the beam and start again um not because we can't keep it in the accelerator but because when they collide it reduces the number of protons that we have and it's more complicated to try and top that up uh than to just get all of rid of all of it and then um, to feed in a whole fresh bunch of protons
0: that's so cool i i just i love it and i mean i'm sure all those particles are getting really really dizzy going around there <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, ironically I've just been looking into spin so um yeah. there's mm-hmm. sort of a little bit more to that <laughs> but I'll, I'll uh, yeah sorry I got completely sidetracked there um mm-hmm. uh, okay. my own my own silly mind has has just mm-hmm. gone sort of um spinning off <laughs> so i'm tr- trying mm-hmm. to trying to refocus uh, mm-hmm. and, and think of something intelligent to say. So you're collecting an awful lot of data, and like you say, it takes you years and years to go through this mm. data. I mean, y- you must have, I can imagine the computers, the the storage and those things must be huge. I mean, there must be an intense amount of data. Does yeah, that... so
1: we we have our own dedicated data center, but then we also have copies that are distributed all over the world. Um, A for backup and B uh, so that people can access them from anywhere access the data.
0: That's really, really cool. I'm going to, I'm going to ask a question that possibly sounds a little bit flippant and I I, I always sort of hate this question, but it's interesting. Why, why are we doing it? What's the point? (laughs) Why are you doing it?
1: Good question. Um, I, I do it because I'm curious and I think that, uh, part of the human endeavor should be to understand, uh, our surroundings and and what we're made of and how everything interacts with each other um i i want to live in a society where we value this and where we we progress towards it um but also i mean so the primary reason is is curiosity it's just purely because i want to know uh how everything works together but it's nice that there are benefits that come from it um There's technology that is developed. I mean, at CERN, we're doing things that have absolutely never been done before, and we have to invent new technology and methods to be able to do it. And because we're publicly funded uh, from from countries all over the world, everything we do is open open source. Uh, So all of our papers are open access. Um, Anything that's invented is just there for people to use. Um, so touch screens were invented at CERN. Um, the web is one that we com- uh, commonly talk about. Uh, PET scanners are, I don't think they were invented at CERN, but they were, the technology that we use have benefited PET scanners, uh, so proton emission tomography scanners. So I also like that the research that we're doing um, feeds into this sort of open culture of knowledge and access to technology. Um, so that, that's why I do it
0: no that's a really good point um on, on one side it's important to know because those discoveries will help us understand other materials other properties mm-hmm. down the line and so that nothing there's no science that is completely isolated like even if you're looking at materials that people aren't specifically interested in at the time there's something's going to come from it but yeah. It's, a, it's a really, really good point that you made about, um you know, the technology. We don't think because we're trying to do something new and you're trying to do something at the cutting edge, we have to develop new techniques. And um I know I, I, on a sort of smaller scale, but we talk about Formula One, which is obviously a business, but mm. there's so many developments that have happened in Formula One for racing that have then gone on to road cars and so like hybrid uh, technology and stuff mm. like that. And I didn't know that touchscreens were a CERN thing. Um,
1: yeah, in the 70s, there's some great like retro footage of like this really old screen that they're touching. Um, and I, I, yeah, I should dig out again. The, the, there's a story, a motivation behind why they wanted touchscreens in that situation. But uh, yeah, I'd have to dig out to, to know the story. But I know that, yeah, they were invented at CERN. That's really cool. I had no idea. Um, yeah, which is one of the reasons why it's free, because there's no patent that uh, uh, means that you have to pay to use it, um, so the design was just, here you go, <laughs> thanks for the public money, here's some new technology. Um,
0: wow, that's amazing.
1: Yeah.
0: And and this is what we're talking about, you know, nothing happens in isolation. I mean, my PhD was working on materials that are used in touchscreens for a sort of next generation. Um Well, potentially next generation anyway, I don't think. (laughs) My PhD, as is often the case, you know, science doesn't always give results. Um... Yeah,
1: (laughs) but that is a result. I I often have to tell people that just because you didn't discover a new particle, for example, that we, we had to look. So that was a result. That's a good thing to have done. It's not as exciting as having a discovery, but we, you know, everybody contributes even with negative results.
0: Actually, that's um, a really good point that I'd sort of like to talk about because this is it. I think, that, I think it's really important that even when you have those negative or null results, um, that is such a huge, um, you know, that is, like you say, that's that's learning stuff, that's improving science. But there isn't the culture of writing papers behind that and it's actually mm-hmm. sort of um, dismissed. And I know that uh, when I was starting out my, my PhD, I found results after two years, sort of null or negative results after two years. And other groups are like, oh yeah, we knew that. But mm. but they didn't write about it. There weren't any papers. Um, so See, I that's,
1: mean... that's rubbish because <laughs> if we did that in particle physics, we would be going round and round in circles if people didn't publish when they, they got null no results. Uh, so I think it's really important to tell people, I looked, I didn't find it. So then they don't look in the same place.
0: I love that you're Talking about CERN and you're talking about particles going around in circles. Uh, <laughs> sorry, giggling that to myself. Yeah. Um, no, that's good. So, is there is there more of a culture of publishing sort of these null results and negative results? Because that that's just not something I come across in my field.
1: Um, yeah, we publish. If you do a Google search for consistent with the standard model, <laughs> you will get almost all of our papers. In fact, all of our papers. Uh, no, almost all. There are some some inconsistencies that we are still teasing apart. Um, but yeah, consistent with the standard model is we didn't find what we were we were looking to find. If it, for example, it's beyond the standard model physics or supersymmetry or dark matter. Um, currently, everything is consistent with this one model that we have to explain how most of the universe works. not most of it, but most of the matter uh, part works. I actually I like that. Um... <laughs>
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um. I actually, I actually like that. I wish we had that in more fields because, like you say, we'd save so much time and so much research is publicly funded. Like, why are we not putting that information out there?
1: And people spend a lot of time on it, and they deserve to be able to say, "Look, I didn't get the result that I was necessarily looking for, but the method was very good, and maybe they developed new techniques for the method for searching, or you know, with the machine learning, I could." uh run my machine learning algorithm and it could say yeah sorry everything looks normal here but the algorithm is could be very good and and interesting for other people to to look at so that's still a result even if you don't find a new particle
0: yeah it's a big thing i mean my phd didn't put out you know it wasn't paper worthy in many ways no. and yet i did a lot of experiments my thesis was packed um and it's really annoying when you know groups sort of four years later find a little bit of extra information and it's like they mm-hmm. can publish stuff and it's like I did 90% of this I just didn't get that the sexy results yeah. <laughs> um I didn't get the sexy science so has and you know speaking of discoveries uh, you've been working with CERN for 10 years is there anything that you're particularly excited about that you've achieved or discovered or uh proved doesn't is isn't Discoverable, or you know, what, mm. what's your highlight of what's your CERN highlight?
1: <laughs> I mean, my my personal highlight is we just put out a paper um, looking at the four top quarks created at the same time. Um, so we don't call this a discovery because it's a standard model process, but it's a a measurement of this process that had not been done before. Uh, well, so the the measurements had been done, but we set limits on how often we think uh, it could happen. So the the theory tells us we expect it to happen this amount of times and we say okay we haven't measured it more than three times what you predict. Um, So that's called setting limits. Uh, And now we have a measurement that we call evidence uh, which is three sigma uh, confidence, um, three standard deviations confidence uh, of of having this prediction. so that was, it's a precision measurement. It was really difficult to do. It took us over two years to do this measurement. And so I'm really proud to have been part of the team uh, that, that did this measurement and contributed to this, uh, this really rare uh, measurement. Um, I mean, obviously, we also have the Higgs discovery, which was very exciting. Um, so I was a PhD student when that came out, uh, when that was announced. So I was working on the hardware, uh, so not directly involved in the uh, analysis. But we decided that um, so there was a, a group of the students uh, at CERN at the time when they were um, when they announced the announcement uh, would be in the auditorium we knew that we weren't going to get seats because like, loads of them were wow. uh, reserved um, unless we uh, got there very early so we turned up at midnight for a talk that started I think at 9am the next day um, very- and had a bit of a party outside of the door uh, and so I was about, say, the 20th person into the room. And so I was sat right at the back in the middle uh, of the auditorium and got to hear the presentations, the discussions, and just the the feeling in the room of the community as something that people had been looking for for 50 years. So um, Higgs was there, Peter Higgs, Professor Peter Higgs, and Professor Francois Angler was there, and uh, the other theorists as well, um, who were part of the, the theorists who predicted the field and the particle, um, and then just so many people who had been involved in, in the discovery uh, in different ways were in the room. So it was just really exciting. It felt like it felt like being at a rock concert, queuing up the night before, and like, oh, I really hope we get a seat and we can get in there. And um, and then afterwards, we went into the the restaurant at CERN. Uh, I fell asleep because I barely had any sleep, so it was like this, on the table, and a journalist came up to our table, which woke me up and said, I could tell you a British, I could see the pins from the other side of the restaurant, does anyone want to talk about this result? Mm-hmm. And so I said something, and I don't even remember what I said, but that was like one of the first articles I was quoted in because I was like, this is great, <laughs> I'm so happy.
0: it's amazing, I love yeah. that. Wow, It, it's it was so... a fun day. Yeah. That, that... That would have really been something to be a part of and sort of the God particle, right?
1: <laughs> I know lo- yeah. oh, we don't call it that. I'm no, I that. know. You can say that. I'm
0: not I to say that. I can say that. No, <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, I was gonna make another joke but i think i'll probably not
1: <laughs> you can make it yeah. i i no actually agree. i'd rather
0: not uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> always avoid religion so i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna switch tack a little bit and um, okay so uh like i said we know each other through our work in sort of outreach and and diversity trying to push for equity in science for different people so um how has your journey been in stem has it and you don't have to talk about anything you don't want to obviously mm. but you know how's how's your journey been? Has it been okay or have you seen stuff that you're like I don't want anyone else to go through this?
1: Yeah I think so as an undergrad I think I was pretty ignorant um, I, I knew obviously that there weren't very many women in physics um, but because I was at the University of Manchester and it was such a big physics department uh, we would have Like so the the women studying uh, in physics we would sometimes meet or you know there would be events and so it didn't actually seem like that few because say there were 30 uh, that seemed like quite a lot even though there were 250 uh, people studying physics in my year Hmm. uh, overall and so I just yeah at the time I was just focusing on my on my studies and didn't really notice it I think as I transitioned to a to a scientist to to this being my career, mm. and I've become more aware um, I have noticed a lot more yeah situations where I think oh that that wouldn't happen if that person wasn't white, for example, or uh the number of times people get interrupted in uh, in meetings the how comfortable people would be. In situations just and jokes that can exclude people um, and so and then also through doing more of the equality and diversity work and talking to other people and, and hearing about their experiences that's also uh, made me more aware so I, I think it's very important for us to educate ourselves um, and I wish that there had been less time spent when I was an undergrad teaching me how to be how to cope in science and more efforts on, on how to break down the barriers that meant I would have to learn how to cope.
0: And It's sort of interesting what you say. I was talking to someone else and they were like, oh my experience was fine uh, because I'm a cis white male. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, did you have any trouble because of your sexuality? And it was like, oh, well, yeah, but it's not as bad as other people. Like, we have this really messed up baseline. Like, it's like, well, at least, you know, uh, we're here. And it's like, well, at least this isn't happening to me. But that doesn't mean that the people down here are experiencing that.
1: Yeah, but also as a cis woman, they often you know you get asked to be involved in things and so that sometimes makes you feel a bit special and you don't realize late until later that you were being tokenized and that you weren't actually being supported and given resources they just wanted to show how many women they had um and so it yeah now now and like now i don't want to do any more training of like power stances and how to how to project my voice and Stuff like that. Now I want to focus really on what, what are the barriers, what are stopping people from, from just doing great science and being happy and having an environment where people can be creative. Because if you're stressed all the time about whether or not a country that the conference you want to go to, whether you're persecuted there because of your gender identity or your sexuality, or then that, that's not the best way for people to be able to, to be in science. And then that's how we lose people because some people just say, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to work in a different industry where it's not, not, well, sometimes it's not so bad, but you know, some people don't have a great experience. I think, um,
0: and it's interesting what you, you were talking about. It was, I think early approaches to diversity were more like, we're willing to have you just make Mm -hmm. sure that you conform and be like us and do the power stance
1: Yeah,
0: and yeah i heard that a lot sort of a few years ago i i hope that people are realizing that we shouldn't be trying to change people i don't know
1: well we should change some people but just not the ones that they usually focus on you know
0: that's a a really (laughs) that's an absolutely fair point
1: yeah (laughs)
0: Yeah. i would
1: like them to do how to not be a bigger training and i know that they'd sometimes do unconscious bias training but that usually teaches people and i've even been involved in it i have taught unconscious bias training myself but sometimes you have to be polite to be able to get things through it all To to be a bit more direct about it and say here are the consequences of your actions and if you don't don't learn to be different like you can be you can be ignorant at the beginning and still have an effect but if now that you know about it you're still doing those things then that's actively uh excluding people from science
0: I, I was thinking about this yesterday, I was I was sort of um, pulling together some slides on fusion uh, energy and I mean we're spending billions, we're putting huge resources, huge time, like it's a, we should have experiments in another 20 years mm. and we're putting all that effort and the hope that maybe we'll get fusion energy and yet when we ask people to change their behaviour to improve the lives of other people, it's like well that's too much.
1: Yeah. It just... <sighs> so something I've come to realize. So for example, this analysis I was talking about the four tops. I really, it was such a great experience to be in it. Um, and we spent two years going through every single systematic uncertainty. So we would say, this is uh, this is some this is the way we measure this in our experiment. How does that have an effect on our final result? Could it possibly be something else that is in um, influencing our result and therefore we're not measuring what we think we're measuring two years of weekly meetings of emails of discussions of conferences of workshops to get this result and i'm so proud of this result but i want us to apply the same rigorous thinking to the yeah to equality and diversity and to to um, why for example certain groups are not represented in science and when you try to talk to not exactly the same people i'm I'm definitely not talking about my team but when you try and talk to the same types of people scientists particle physicists and say oh hey look we're not very well represented for black scientists in our research maybe there is a systematic bias within our community, within the way that, you know, at schools and universities, throughout the career process, that means that people are not being black people in the UK, for example, are not becoming particle physicists. Let's look at where that is happening. Let's look at what what biases are influencing uh, people. And people go, nah, they just don't like it. They just, those some people just don't want to do physics or there's no problem. And I just don't understand. It makes me very frustrated. Yeah, at
0: least, um, well, yeah, we've got a long way to go. Uh, but I think we are improving things. I, I, yeah, I, I think sorry, I, I don't have. To... <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I completely agree. And we were talking about, uh, you know, I've been, we have a lot of these conversations. Um, yeah. And it is, it's all, how can we improve things? and. I am glad that things are moving but I think that some of that is we've got a lot more voice so we've got a lot more, um, we can be heard a lot easier these days with social media and stuff Mm. like that and so we can't be ignored anymore which maybe 10 years we could. (laughs) Mm.
1: Yeah this is good and and organising and and talking to people in different fields is very good as well to be able to see what other people might be implementing that could work and and learning from scholars who are really researching on this so I don't pretend that I'm actually an expert I, I talk a lot about it because I'm also quite loud uh, and once I get frustrated with something I don't want to just let it go but there are people whose whole jobs it is to do this kind of uh, work in research and, and so I've been trying to read more uh, of their work and, and sharing their citing them basically um, wow. to make sure that I'm not just taking somebody else's work Basically the same as what we would expect of yeah. a, a good scientist.
0: Yeah, due diligence and sort of, you know, ethically useful references and stuff like that. I mean, yeah, you know, um, yeah, it's like I say, I think it's improving. It's great that we've got more of a voice these days and, and the internet, you know, it has its flaws, um, but I mean because of the internet they um, some people got together and organized the lgbt seminar that i went to and that's where i went a few years ago and that's where i met so many other people that i was working with and they've introduced me to other people yeah so, and i know that i'm not alone anymore i'm not the only trans scientist out there which before i really got involved in sort of um uh, diversity and st- in Twitter, in uh, diversity in STEM, in Twitter, on Twitter, I, mm. you know, I felt very alone, and so it's really great that we can bring people together because um, it can be hard yeah. work. <laughs> it, it can be it, it can be really hard work.
1: Yeah, so, and also I think one of the nice things about the group that we're in is that so the the people who are being directly affected by something should have a voice in in directing it, but. They shouldn't have to do all the work. If something bad is happening, if people are being aggressive about trans rights, then we should also, so cis people should also stand next to trans people and say this is not okay and take some of the burden Um because I don't think it's fair that, you know, it's exhausting to have to
0: deal with things. I agree, Um, but I also like talking about the group Tigers in STEM and I, I love the fact that, you know, I can say something and someone will be like, Well, no, you've got that wrong. That is not, you know, that's racist or that's ableist, and and but we can have a discussion about it, and we'll listen, and I come out more educated, I know more, and uh, improved as a result of that. It's it's a it's nice when you can, because you don't always feel that people are listening to you either. But I know Mm. that within our group, if we say no, you've got that wrong, it's like oh sorry, right? Why? And that that's really nice. Like people. Being able to say, yeah, I don't know everything. (laughs) Which as scientists, you'd think that was a basic principle. We don't know everything, otherwise we won't be doing what we do.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there's that pie chart, right? Of things you know, things you know you don't know, and things you don't know you don't know. And we need to be better at saying, there's this whole chunk of things we don't know, and that's okay, we'll we'll learn.
0: Yeah, exactly. Absolutely yeah. um, and, and just talking a little bit more, um, so obviously a big part of um, improving uh, sort of inclusion and equity is is just visibility, and I know you do a lot of uh, science outreach, like you're mm-hmm. involved in different little things. Is there anything that you'd like to talk about that you enjoy doing in terms of the science outreach side of it?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, maybe to start, I mean this is where I, I started to get more involved with uh because i wanted to show at the at the time a young uh, woman working in physics um as a sort of working example of of somebody in the field because yeah repre- representation matters um and now so i still do a lot of outreach um I, I i love talking to schools i do a lot of sort of remote conversations with schools Amazing. Uh, because they can't always travel geneva is very expensive to get to Especially during the global pandemic, people can't travel anymore. Yeah. Um. So being able to still give young people the experience of of wonder of being able to even virtually visit our lab and and to understand what we're doing, because I I want people to understand. I don't want it to be this sort of hidden hidden research facility. It's not. It's it's you can go on tours. You can you can talk to the scientists, and we're very happy to explain uh, what we're doing. Um. But now also I, I do work on uh, enabling others to do outreach so i want because as you said uh, representation is so important i don't represent everybody so i want to make sure that other people can also do outreach so that they can be representative for their groups and i think that's that's important as well
0: oh that's really good and i I think and and that's yeah the basic principle of you know real equity is giving giving other people a voice and and allowing them to have their voice and and giving them that platform, it's really cool. Yeah, it's
1: it's the whole imagery of climbing a ladder, right? There's some people that will climb the ladder and and they'll just climb on their own and say, great, now I'm here. (laughs) But there are other people that sort of help the people following to climb up the ladder as well. And that's how you bring people up with you. I don't want to climb on my own. I think that's very lonely. I think it's important that we bring everybody else up with us.
0: Yeah. And unfortunately I do know people that would kick the ladder down after they've got to the top as well. So um yep. sad, but uh, I also I'm I'm loving the image. I mean, do you have like um big waddles of school children like ten mm-hmm. uh, year olds running around the large Hadron collider and poking oh, so things?
1: not <laughs> not in the tunnel, although we have had open days where people can go down into the tunnel, but that's quite rare. I've only been into the tunnel once. Um, it was so it was quite funny when I, I went to New York a few years ago and I went to the UN and had a tour. And while I was there in the in the canteen, I thought, oh, how strange it would be to just have tour groups in your in your work canteen. And then I remembered that that's exactly certain. That's what happens all the time. And <laughs> I just sort of don't really, you know, it was just so normal I didn't really think about it. Um, but yeah, we when when everything is open and and functioning uh, without a pandemic um we often have school groups that come and visit CERN, and it's really great sometimes they're all in in jumpers with sort of sciency themed nicknames on them and uh it's, it's nice to see them and what i really love about doing outreach and talking to people about what we do is that i can get very bugged down in the code i might spend all of my day trying to work out one bug and that can be very uh frustrating and you get you know you're j- just working on this very small part of the whole thing but when you do outreach and, and talk to people about the work that we're doing then uh, it reminds me of the the bigger picture the motivation for doing it and just the excitement on people's faces when you can show them the detector mm. it, i also benefit from it because i i get reminded of how cool it is that uh, the work that we're doing and um, so i think it's great to share
0: that's really funny actually because you were you were sharing that story about being in the canteen and and how strange it would be to have people looking around. And I was thinking, yeah, God, I can't imagine having people coming around my lab. And then I realized that, yeah, normally I have about 10 to 20 schools a year coming to my lab and I've built demos to show them superconductivity. So Yeah. Um, you forget uh, that's interesting, isn't it? We're, it's so embedded and we do it so naturally that we sort of forget that we do it. Yeah. Um, and I'm often trying to avoid spilling liquid nitrogen on our school children because, you know, that would be a lot of paperwork, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's amazing. Is there anything else that you sort of want to mention, whether science or outreach, and feel free if there's not?
1: <laughs> um, I think we covered a lot. I don't think there's, um, there's nothing on the top of my head that I think, oh, we didn't talk about this. I mean, we could keep talking for hours, I'm sure, but uh, uh, I don't think there's a big thing that we missed.
0: Yeah, no, I could um, yeah, definitely be talking for hours. It's as simple yeah. as that, I'm loving <laughs> it. But um, but I've taken quite a bit of your time. So I really, really uh, appreciate you coming on and, and chatting and thanks for sharing the work you do. Um, and like I say, I'm really privileged to work with you, to know you. Um, I think you're an amazing advocate and it's, uh, it's, it's great that I've got all these friends that I'm just like, wow, this person's amazing. It's, it's awesome. So thank you so much.
1: Yes, well, thank you for inviting me on and, and the feeling is mutual. I'm so impressed with all the work that you're doing, both in your research and, and the uh, advocacy work that you're doing. So it's a pleasure to be on your channel. Oh, thank you so
0: much wow that was awesome uh that was so cool so uh i I love these videos and i get to learn more each time so thank you so much clara for taking the time to chat So yeah uh, like i say don't forget to follow um clara and if you could like subscribe to this video that'd be brilliant and i'll see you again soon till next time